the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Alpadi, and I want to thank you, of course, as always, for watching this video series and any of our videos and our channel. And thank you for subscribing to CUA International. I also encourage you to subscribe to our dear brother, Dr. J. Smith channel, Fonder Films. And uh, remember also to consider becoming part of our Patreon team. Your support is needed as always, and we are always blessed by it, regardless of the amount, obviously. So thank you so much again for partnering with us. Uh, we have been uh, unpacking contents that come from a newly released book. In fact, I believe it was released in August 2022, entitled Creating the Quran by an author. His name is Stephen Shoemaker. And we've been really taking quotations from that book uh, discussing, uh, you know, many of the arguments that are raised in that book. And one of those arguments uh, uh, that were brought up in the book is known as Nildeki Shwalian Paradigm. And we did address this in a couple of episodes in the past. Now we are going to uh, discuss criticism of this paradigm. And the paradigm, in a nutshell, stated that we have to accept what we call the Uthmanic Quran as the Quran as the standard original Quran, in other words, accept it as a fact and move on. And now we're going to talk about criticism of that position. With me here, of course, to discuss all of this is Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., thank you as always. And of course, we did address this Noldeki Shwalian paradigm, but now we're going to talk about criticism of that position. Yeah, it has been taken as the uh, the norm, The what this is the narrative that everybody uses, uh, you grew up with it, I grew up with it, it's all over academia. Uh, it has really been birthed with Noldeki and Shwali from the last century and the century before. So th there haven't been too many people who have found fault with it because they've never looked at it, nor did they want to find fault at it, even if they knew that there was fault for, in it. I, what I want to do is look at six scholars specifically and just see their criticism and unpack each one of their criticisms. Mm -hmm. The first one, and these are all in, in, in Shoemaker's book. He brings them up, and so it's not me that has found this. This is why I like Shoemaker. He goes to all the academic scholarship that he is aware of and pulls it from many different sources so it speaks for him. 
so that it's not just one voice. That's always good to do that so you know that you're not speaking alone, you're on, a, on an island, or that you are unique. There are an awful lot of people who are saying this. We just haven't read them, nor did we see what they're, why, why is it they've come to their conclusion. And, and they were, these scholars, I mean, for the most part, they were ahead of their time, or they faced a lot of uh, rebuke for daring to say anything that goes against the standard tradition. No, especially someone like Patricia Kroner, who right. is a second one. Let's start with John Burton, and I'll do in sequence of when they wrote or when they uh, mm-hmm. re- referred to this, their critique of Noldekishwalian paradigm. John Burton uh, says this, the reports, are, the reports are, are a mass of confusion. These are the uh, traditional reports, right. the standard Islamic narrative, are a mass of confusions, contradictions, and inconsistencies. By their nature, they represent the product of a lengthy process of evolution, accretion, and improvement. They were framed in response to a wide variety of progressing needs. The existence of such reports make it clear that the Muslims were confused. And he's specifically talking about the Uthmanic recension, the Uthmanic uh, manuscript. The earliest stage of the traditions on the collection of the Quran did not consist in incompatible attribu- attributions of the first collection to Abu Bakr, to Umar, and to Uthman. So you can see there, this enormous amount of confusion is there. Why hasn't anybody noticed this? That suggests that there's a problem with this because no one really knew what it was. These are nothing but, but second guess. I mean, Al-Tabari is probably typical of this. Al-Tabari, we know. In fact, we love Al-Tabari, who's writing in the 10th century. He died in 923. And he would take every tradition he could find. He would amass it together. And then he would just kind of throw it out there. Right. And he'd say, now you, the reader, you decide which exactly. one you like. Here's a possibility, here's a possibility, here's another account, and he goes through the list, you know, of these accounts. Uh, Ibn Kathir did the same thing also, by the way, many times. So this is why we love him, because they are just so transparent. Patricia Kroon is one who is by far the, the, the leading scholar on this point. Uh, in 1992, uh, she writes this. Scholars mimic Muslims. She says, Western Islamists frequently sound like Muslims, she says, usually of the Sunni variety, not only in the sense that they accept Sunni information, but also in that they revere it in a manner incompatible with the question mark to which they have in principle committed themselves. What did they commit themselves to? The whole historical critical critique method. That's what you're supposed to hold yourself to if you're a historian and if you're a scholar in the history of Islam. This is a complement to the strength of Sunnism, but it does not do the modern study of its origins and development any good. So, you know, they're so endeared to the Muslims. Well, that's the reason why. It's because of our good friend Smith has demanded they do so that they're not even they're not even following their own craft. They're not even implementing their own criteria, and they're certainly not doing a historical critical study. Is what they're supposed to do if they are really scholars of the historical critical method. So she says that in 1992. Now, Chase Robinson in 2005, now we're coming into this century, and he says this, the complicated and protracted process processes that generated monotheist scriptures in antiquity and late antiquity are generally measured in centuries or at least several decades. The tradition would have us believe, that's the Islamic tradition, that in the case of Islam, they were telescoped into about 20 years. Are we really to think 
that within a single generation, God's word moved from individual lines and chapters scribbled on camel shoulder blades and rocks to a complete, single, fixed, and authoritative text on papyrus or vellum? It would be virtually unprecedented. It is furthermore unlikely in the light of what we now know of early Arabic. That's coming later. The nature of early Arabic script, which only imperfectly described vowels and consonants and conventions of memorization and reading, which often privileged memory over written text, would mitigate against the very rapid production of the fixed and authoritative text that the tradition described. Now, what he's saying very simply, look at, just look at the Quran. Just read it for heaven's sakes. It's sophisticated. It has an enormous amount of categories. It has an enormous amount of laws, rules, regulations, all kinds of legal process. It is really quite a sophisticated piece of literature. And yet, you're trying to say something that of this nature would take centuries to put together. You're saying it happened in only 22 years. And, and you know, these guys are asking the right questions. Indeed, how can you convince me that such a book was preserved in such a speed and was put together perfectly in such a short period of time, and yet what we have as evidence back then and today contradict all of this claim? Absolutely. Now, we're going to continue with three more in the next episode, because these three I just want to get started with, because now that brings us into the next century, this century that we're living in. What I want to do now is do more with 2006, 2012, and then even this year, what Shoemaker is saying. And what is it that we want people to get out of these, uh, you know, different uh, criticism by these scholars? I mean, what exactly uh, are we trying to help them get out of it? I mean, that's for the benefit of the uh, for, for the Muslims who are listening, yeah. what they what you need to know is we have been for so long taking what you're saying verbatim. We've never questioned it. We never really even unpacked it. We never even tried to critique it. Well, this has got to stop. Is what they're saying, and this is what Shoemaker is saying. This is what Crone has been saying. Uh, this is what Burton has been saying earlier. We now are going to apply the same context, the same categories that we did to the Bible. We're going to now apply to you. And we're going to do some historical criticism, but we're also going to look at in the context of the historical environment that it was supposedly written. We're going to look at it within the 7th century. What we're going to find, in, and you're going to see this, is that it just does not fit that century, it does not fit that time, and it does not fit what the early scholars were saying. The, even the early scholars who were in the, written in the 9th and 10th century don't agree with what we're saying today. So that's why it's important that we do this, we ask these questions, and then we come to conclusions. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And of course, I hope everyone... Uh, has been uh, paying attention to uh, the many arguments that we've been raising. Uh, we are quoting from the book. We are addressing content from the book, but we also will giving you the flavor of even rustling with what's being mentioned or dissecting the meaning behind it or the interpretation that could be drawn out of the many uh, basically fascinating uh, quotations, fascinating arguments, contradictions that are being highlighted, or put in a spotlight, and so on and so forth. And as my brother mentioned here, uh, the intent here is to help you, our viewers, especially our Muslim viewers, take a look and a glimpse at many scholars, by the way, like uh, Patricia Crone, for instance, you know, said things that I doubt that are being quoted all the time, at least during her lifetime, or even up until recently. Why? Because 
There is this fear factor. Sometimes people are being attacked and antagonized for daring to go against the mainstream, uh, basically, tradition of accepting, as you know, some of the scholars stated, the Othmanic recension. In other words, accept it, move on, and just don't argue back, and just do not highlight anything that is negative or perceived to be negative against the Quran and its history. But that flies in the face of scholarship. That flies in the face of uh, authenticity of research, uh, credibility of research, truthfulness of research, because a scholar, in my humble view, is like an investigator, looks as evidence, shares the evidence. They can withhold their opinion, but at least make these evidence known to those who need to benefit from it. In this case, I speak to you, my Muslim friends. It is not for my own gain that I'm doing this. We receive a lot of flack, myself and Dr. J, by the way, for doing things like this. You have no idea how many times we're being cussed out uh, or uh, ridiculed. Uh, just go and read the many comments that we receive on our uh, YouTube channel. But it doesn't matter to me. At the end of the day, what matters the most is that I want you to know the truth and be set free. And only Christ can set you free. Until we meet next time, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAinternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Last time we shared three opinions, or three at least views, or three basically, dis, uh, I would say, uh, um, you know, critical assessments. Today we're going to share three more critical assessments by such scholars who were highlighted in this book. Again, which book we're talking about? Creating the Quran by Stephen Shoemaker. With me here to unpack all of that for us is Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., thank you again for being here. Last time we talked about the likes of like John Burton or Patricia Cronin. Today you're going to highlight more scholars who dared to say that the standard Islamic narrative about the collection of the Quran, its compilation, has some problems. Has some problems. So let's go and let's uh, unplug, unplug their quotes and see what they say. And these are all coming out of Shoemaker's book. So you get the book, you can have it, and then you can enjoy it like we have. Claude Gillio in 2006 says this, Because the misadventures detailed about the transmission and codification of the Quran as both orally delivered and transmitted in writing are so great, the ancient Muslim narratives on these subjects offer no real clarity about what the Uthmanic Codex really means. Secondly, even if Muslims believe that the Quran we have now is the Uthmanic Codex, our analysis of Muslim narratives on the matter does not leave us with the same certainty. So he's very clear. Folks, you may want it, you may want it, you may even demand it, you may even say that this is the only narrative there is, but you Western scholars, be careful. Even the Islamic traditions don't support you. They're not that clear. And I want to just highlight what he says. Uh, basically, uh, there is no real clarity about what the Uthmanic Codex. And you always ask this question, by the way. He always says, do we have a 7th century Quran? In my view, if you say that what you have in your hand today is what we mean by the Uthmanic Codex, 
then do you have something to support that that's exactly what Uthman collected? And the answer so far is that you can't find a... Where's the evidence on the ground? It just does not exist. So that is Gilio, Claude Gilio, uh, or Gio, or however you want to pronounce it in French. Vivian Vivian, uh, Comero says in 2012, says this, we should not look to these narratives as reporting what really happened. Instead, each of these accounts on the Uthmanic recension was produced and transmitted in order to advance a particular set of religious and doctoral interests rather than simply to report a set of facts from the past. So there was an agenda here. And she says it's very clear we need to be careful of that agenda. Remember, we talked about the thesis, Lincoln's thesis, those five theses. That's one of the things he warned us about. Be aware that almost every uh, written text. Every author has an agenda. Mm-hmm. What is the agenda there? Are we really then just being duped by that agenda? Be careful of that. Stephen Shoemaker himself, and he he, he uh, wades into this whole argument, and he says the earliest efforts to remember and collect Muhammad's words came not from a Medinan caliph, but in the distant locales of Syria and Iraq. Well, that's way up north. Yes. Yeah. Medina, way down in the Which Hijaz. We're going to get into that we've been talking about when yeah. we get into the further episodes. These areas were rich, uh, that were rich with Jewish and Christian believers and traditions. The early versions were disturbingly different from one another, so much so that the imperial authorities saw it as essential to get involved and to eliminate these conflicting memories of Muhammad with a standard version. So here is where he's now putting his foot down. And this is way on page 40 by the time he says this. Now you're starting to see that he's coming, starting to come to some type of conclusion. I want to show people page 40 of a book this big. See? Page 40. He said that. You can imagine what happens the rest of the book. Well, let's continue on. Let's go to the very next page uh, where he starts to come to his conclusions. And here's now where we're kind of introducing his paradigm, where he's introducing his narrative or... His conclusion. Well, his conclusions. It is also noteworthy, he says, in this regard, that prior to the enthronement of Abd al-Malik's father, Marwan, for the Marwan Caliphate, or part of the Umayyad Caliphate, 684 to 685, Muhammad himself receives no mention at all in the documentary evidence from the early Islamic polity. Look at that. No reference to Muhammad in anything that we can find that early. He is not named by anyone of the papyri or in the inscriptions. The coins don't talk about him from this period. We are thus left wondering what his importance was for the believers during their first half century. This shift towards public proclamation of the authority of Muhammad and uh, Muhammad and the Quran is most marked during the reign of Abdul Malik. It all seems to happen during the time of of the Malik, he says. This clear move to identify Muhammad and his teaching unambiguously as the basis for the faith of the believers adds further reason for identifying this period as the time when the canonical text of the Quran was produced and proclaimed as an authoritative word for God for the community of the believers. So now he is now putting down his marker. He's putting his marker down, and this is what I've been waiting for. And it took me 40 pages to get to what he's actually saying. Continuing on in the next page, Abdul Malik would emerge as the leader of a potent and well-organized state that would be fully capable of achieving what the tradition improbably ascribes instead to Uthman. There is near universal agreement from every quarter that Abdul Malik was instrumental in establishing and enforcing the canonical version of the Quran. 
That's what his conclusion is. Now he's going to have to try to prove it. And he's got another 200 pages to do just that. The first 40 pages, he's been giving everybody else's opinion. He's been showing us where the problems are. He's been t- uh, 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 confronting an awful lot of the academia and the difficulties we're having, the Noldekishwali. Now he's saying, let's now go and see what we can find from what the evidence shows us. And he's already saying where he thinks he's going to go. And it has everything to do with Abdel Malik. So the next episode, we're going to start with Abdel Malik and Al-Hajjaj. Those two names together. Hold on to those two names because this is going to stand in complete or direct contradiction or and also confront the Noldeki Shwali paradigm. Yeah, uh, and, and really uh, the, the, these uh, conclusions that are reached by uh, Shoemaker are very powerful. I mean, if you think about it, he is for the first time stating, or at least I would say he's among the first to state what we've been talking about, about Abdul Malik, about Islam from the north, the Quran from the north, Qiraat from the north, Hadith from the north. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to begin to wonder what is the relationship between Islam and the north, the Qiblas, north. I mean, you have so many things that are happening, even you know, Mecca and uh, Safa, Marwa, you know, the uh, Black Stone, you know, the, uh, the shrine, all this, there are ample evidence to point north. And you begin to wonder, why is everyone ignoring this and not even just inspecting it, investigate, put it to rest. Say, you guys, you know, I investigated it. Here is the finding. You guys are all wrong. This is why no one is daring to go there. <laughs> I have to laugh. I have to laugh because you've not even read this book yet, have you? And yet you're almost writing this book for him. Yeah. He's going to get to every one of the things that you just went through. Every one of those categories that you mentioned, he's going to talk about. God bless him. I mean, this is why we need Shoemaker, because he is actually finally putting to paper what we have been saying, what we have noticed. Those of us in the Sin Sifters have been pulling it up, pulling it up. The German school, the Inada school, Robert Karen, all the way. They've known about it. Some of them for even for a hundred years, they've known about it. But no one's really written it down. That's why Shoemaker is finally doing so. Almost everything you just quoted on the Qiblas, on the problem with Mecca, on the problem with water, on the problem with the northern hegemony, on the problem with Safa and Marwa, the whole thing with Jerusalem, that's all going to come out when we finally get through this book. Hold because on to it. It's, we have it's, a lot to unpack. It's only logical, Jay, to ask these kind of questions. I mean, uh, I'm not even done with my uh, PhD yet, and, and, and you're starting to see things when you're researching that prompt you to pause and ask questions. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't have to reach a conclusion. Just asking questions alone should prompt people to begin to think and reason with these events. Well, let's start and think about Abdul Malik. Abdul Malik. Boy, we've talked about him. I had no idea right. Shoemaker was going to go this direction. Me too. I was shocked uh, when I saw that he went in that direction. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Finally, we have someone who is making you and me look like we're not insane, but rather sane when we're talking about these issues. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. And uh, until we meet next time, this is Al-Fadi over and out. God bless.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.